When Caroline invited me up this, this year, she asked me what the topic of the retreat would be. So I asked her, what would you like to have? And she sent back a list, and the list was all over the place. <laughs> so I had the choice, either to choose one topic or try to see if I can lasso all the other topics into, a, into a, one theme. So I tried, to, I tried the second. I tried to lasso everything in. And it came up with the readings that we have here. And we'll be going over this weekend. And then, then I began to realize what we had, which was the title I gave it, was Maps to Awakening. Different ways of framing how the Buddha saw the practice should go and the steps by which it should develop. And I began to realize we're touching on an important topic here, which is that the way we tend to be introduced to Buddhism here in the West is quite artificial. We either learn about it through books, college courses, or through going to retreats. And we're exposed either to specific concepts, taken kind of out of context, like we hear about the three characteristics, we hear about the Four Noble Truths, we hear about mindfulness. Or we get practice in a particular technique, like a mindfulness technique or a metta technique. And that's what it becomes. It becomes concepts and practices, and it begins to be somewhat of a set of ideas that are not too well tied together, or practices that are not too well tied together. And a lot of the, the glue that puts those things together is missing. Whereas in Asia, if you, when you're introduced to Buddhism, you're usually introduced through people first. You get to know someone who's devoted his or her life to the Dharma. You get to realize, okay, this is a good person. Maybe this person has something I can learn. Maybe this person has something to share for me. And it, you begin to realize the Dharma is a quality of the heart in addition to being a set of practices within a fairly coherent or very coherent um, worldview. And so what's missing in our side here? One is we tend to have a lack of emotional maturity. Um, we come to the practice wanting quick results. After all, we've got, we've got a whole weekend. We could have spent someplace else. I want to get this first jhana down. <laughs> that seems to be our attitude. Um, and we also want everything boiled down to very, very simple concepts, things that fit into the worldview we already have. You, can, you don't go to the, a weekend retreat to get your worldview suddenly changed. Um, secondly, there's a lack of understanding about the core teachings, the context in which they're meant to be applied, and how they fit together. For instance, as we'll be seeing, the Buddha puts conviction at very early in the path. Now, conviction is basically conviction in the Buddha's awakening. And the, the fact that he really was awakened, he really did put an end to suffering through his own efforts, using qualities that he developed, but were qualities that we all have in a potential form. And that boils down to conviction in the principle of karma and the principle of rebirth. And so it's basically a statement of what the problem is and also how we're going to get, get past the problem, i.e. through our own actions. And then the other concepts, things like goodwill, Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, are meant to be understood within that context of, of what your actions, in other words, what kind of actions are being taught by the Four Noble Truths, what kind of actions are being promoted by the Three Characteristics, and so on down the line. And then finally, there's a question of character often gets left out, you know, because meditation becomes just a technique, insight becomes just a matter of getting the right vocabulary, has very little to do with your basic goodness as a person. 
Although when we have metta meditation retreats, okay, it's all about goodness, but then goodness doesn't get very clearly defined. How does the, the Buddha's idea of metta fit in with the rest of the practice? What does he mean by this? What does it mean to have goodwill for someone? At the same time, what, does it, what is, actions are called upon from us as we develop metta? That often gets left out. Metta basically becomes a general kind of niceness. And what we find that the Buddha himself could be quite sharp with people. So the question is, oh, exactly what does he mean by being harmless? What does he mean by having goodwill for others? And finally, there's the question of emotional maturity. Let's go through these um, in a little bit more detail. Then. Emotional maturity, we're not ready to handle some of the issues or master some of the necessary skills. The Western students going to Thailand often presented the, the Thai Johns with a problem. How do you teach these Westerners, who are obviously so different, so lacking in what they saw as was sort of basic education for children in Thailand? I know in my own, my own case, John Fuang told me lots of stories that you would tell children in Thailand, um, which at first I found interesting, but then I began to realize it was basically the message was, hey, you're missing out on an important part of your education, the basic skills that a child should have. Um, in Thailand, especially not so much nowadays, but back in the old days, one of the first things you taught a child was patience. You taught them equanimity. Our culture teaches us impatience, teaches us not to be equanimous about things, it teaches us to get worked up about things. So the Johns felt they had to back up a little bit. You see this in the teachings that a John Cha gave to Westerners. There was a what we call the John Cha Shindig several years back, where all these students of a John Cha came and had a big commemoration of a John Cha what he had done for them. This is held down in California. And you listen to the various stories that these people told, and you realize that John Cha had all these Western, neurotic Westerners coming to him. <laughs> and they were upset because Thailand was hot and because they were hungry. He said, what do you expect? <laughs> and so he would back up and the basic lessons that were being taught, and again, he taught the kind of stories that you would tell children in Thailand about being patient and about having lots and lots of equanimity. And so that seems to be one of the main things you see in the teachings coming out of that tradition. When we look at the maps that I provided, this comes under map number five in the Buddha's instructions to Rahula, um, where he talks about the various practices you should develop before you get, before you even start regular meditation. There are lots of ways of developing character. One particular one is about developing patience, where he says, make your mind like earth. People throw discussing things on the earth, the earth doesn't react. And this is a quality that we don't, haven't developed very well here in the West, but that is actually a necessary part of the, the training, especially if you're going to master the skills of meditation. Similarly, when John Sawat, who was another one of my teachers, was invited to IMS to teach meditation, and after the, about the second or third day, he turned to me and said, do you notice how grim everybody is around here? Part of that, of course, is you know, then you're not allowed to look at each other, you're not allowed to talk, and that's kind of a grim environment. But he also attributed to the fact that most of the people in there did not have a real foundation in the Buddhist teachings on generosity and virtue. Um, basically, teachings and how getting some confidence in the Buddhist teachings that even though his techniques for advising how to develop happiness may seem a little bit counterintuitive, you find that you, when you put them into practice, you really do develop a sense of well-being, you develop a sense of uh, your own self-worth um, that gives you the confidence, okay, when he says, okay, you've got to meditate now too, you have some confidence, okay, this is going to be for my own good, and I'm going to enjoy this. 
Otherwise, you see, it looks like a nirvana or bust written across people's heads. <laughs> so this will be another one of the issues we come up with um, in the second map that I, I gave, which is that the Buddhists, before the Buddha introduced the Four Noble Truths, he would start out with generosity and virtue and describe the, 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 the goodness of generosity, the goodness of virtue, what, what that meant, and then the rewards that would come from that. And then, only then, would you be ready to accept the Four Noble Truths. And one of the lessons you learn from all this is um, lessons in delayed gratification. In other words, there will be times when you have to put in a lot of effort and you can't expect the results to come right away, but you have confidence that, yes, okay, if I put in enough effort, it will be rewarded down the line. Um, also, you begin to realize, and this has to do with the questions of character as well, is the difference between having good intentions and having skillful intentions. There's a passage in the canon where the Buddha is teaching his son, Rahula. And you have the feeling that Rahula probably that day told a lie, because that's the first thing the Buddha starts out with. You know, he comes and Rahula sets out some water for his father to wash his feet. So the Buddha washes his feet and has a dipper. He leaves a little bit of water in the dipper. He says, do you see how little water, little, little water there is left in the dipper here? And Rahula says, yes. He says, that's how little goodness there is in someone who tells a deliberate lie and doesn't feel ashamed about it. Then he takes the water and throws it away. See, see how that water's thrown away? Rahula says, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, that's what happens to the goodness of a person who tells a deliberate lie and feels no shame. The goodness is thrown away. Then he turns it upside down. He says, see, see how upside down this is? Yes. See how empty it is? Yes. Um, the message being that, okay, the very beginning of the path has to be the principle of truthfulness, that you do not tell a deliberate lie at all. Then secondly, he goes on to say, you have, before you do anything, you have to look at your intentions. Do you expect any harm to come from this? It will, later on in the course, we'll be getting into the Buddhist idea of what it is to harm someone. If you expect any harm, don't do it. In other words, you start out, you're trying to start out with good intentions. If you don't expect harm, go ahead, do it. While you're doing it, check your actions to see the actual results. And the first time you check it is while you're doing the action. If you see any harm coming up, stop. If you don't see any harm, continue. Then when the action is done, then go look at the long-term results. And if it turns out that it did cause harm, even though you didn't see it right away, remember that and resolve not to repeat that mistake. And if you can, find somebody who you trust, go and talk it over with that person, get that person's input on how to avoid that mistake the next time. And then you take those lessons and you incorporate them into your subsequent decisions. Now, if you find that you didn't cause any harm, then take joy in that fact and then continue the training. So the Buddha is basically saying here that you start out with good intentions, but good intentions are not enough. You have to check the actual results so you can turn them into skillful intentions the next time around. This is how you develop the kind of maturity that's needed in order to progress on the path. As for questions of understanding, as I said earlier, the Buddha puts everything in the context of conviction, conviction and principle of your actions, that you're acting on skillful intentions, you will get good results. Acting on unskillful intentions, you'll get bad results. And within that, then you try to, he said, you understand all the other teachings, like the Four Noble Truths, are basically that principle turned inside into the mind. Okay, there's unskillful actions, i.e. craving, which give to undesirable results, suffering. And then there are skillful actions, the path, which could rise to desirable results, the end of suffering. 
So the Four Noble Truths are basically taking the principle of karma and applying it specifically to the, the issue of why is it, how is it that we cause ourselves suffering. And then within the framework of that, then the question is, say, what is mindfulness? Well, in this case, mindfulness is not simply being aware of things coming and going, but the mindfulness is there to remember the duties of the Four Noble Truths, which are to comprehend suffering, abandon the cause, realize the cessation of suffering and by developing the path. And so this is what you keep in mind. Remember, mindfulness is not just bare awareness or non-reactive awareness. The Buddhist term for mindfulness, actually, it's a quality of the memory, the things you keep in mind that you then apply to your actions. Um, Similarly with the questions of the three characteristics. It's interesting, the Buddha himself never used the word three characteristics. This is one of the advantages of having the Pali Canon on a CD-ROM. You can check and see, does this term exist anywhere in the canon? And it turns out three characteristics doesn't exist. So the question is, what did the Buddha call it? And he called them the three perceptions. And the three perceptions are there to apply so you can develop the duties of the Four Noble Truths. In other words, you look at say, the suffering that you're causing yourself, and you're trying to see that, okay, this is inconstant, it's stressful, why am I claiming it? Why, why should I see this as myself? It's a value judgment you're making here. This Is it really worth it? And you see that it's not worth it, then you, don't, then you can let it go. So you're developing dispassion for the suffering, then you apply the same analysis to the causes of suffering. You see where you're craving something. What is this craving? Is it something I can rely on? Is it something that's trustworthy? No. Why am I claiming it to be myself? If you think of your mind like a committee, you've got these members coming in saying, hey, go out and get drunk. And you say, wait a minute, is this me talking or is this you know, some advertisement that's gotten stuck in my awareness that's talking to me? And then if you say, well, this is not really leading me in the right direction, let it go. As for the path, the Buddha does not have you apply the three characteristics or three perceptions to the path right away. It has you apply it to anything that would pull you off the path. In other words, when you're trying to develop virtue, look at the things that would make you want to break the precepts and learn how not to identify with those desires. You apply the three perceptions there. Similarly with concentration, you're sitting here trying to get the mind still and you start thinking about next week and you say, look, I have to put that aside. And so you apply the three perceptions to those distracting thoughts. But as for the concentration itself, you're actually trying to get the mind in as constant, easeful a state and as much under control as you can. In other words, you're fighting against those three perceptions as you develop the path. It's only when the path is fully developed, then you apply the three perceptions to everything across the board. So these are some of the things that tend to get forgotten when we learn about these concepts separately. It all, for the Buddhist point of view, it all fits under the teaching on karma as a way to put an end to suffering. But the way we, we tend to learn about it here is that the three characteristics are a description of reality. That's the way reality really is out there. Everything is inconstant, stressful, not self. Um, and the, ten, the context of the Four Noble Truths tends to get forgotten. A year ago I was working on a book on the path, and I was looking on other people's books on the Eightfold Path, and I kept running into this strange phenomenon where people start talking about the Four Noble Truths, and before they've gotten very far, they switch over to the three characteristics. 
you know, the Buddhist teaching is you know, things really are in constant stressful, not self. We don't understand that fact. We think that they're permanent. Therefore, we cling to them. If we learn how to realize why everything is in constant, then we just learn how to embrace and let go, embrace and let go, and we're okay. And this was kind of across the board, from popular descriptions even to more scholarly descriptions of the path. Everything gets boiled down to the three characteristics. In other words, the three characteristics are taken as the view of reality, and then the Four Noble Truths are squeezed into that. And what happens <coughs> is you get some pretty serious misunderstandings. Um, one is the view that because there is no self, there's no agent, we're totally on the receiving end of our experience. We're not really responsible for anything. We, we have to just kind of let go of ideas of responsibility. There's a lot of fatalism. I was giving a Dharma talk in the, in the Bay Area last year. <coughs> I was talking about karma and choices we have in our lives. And this one person came up afterwards and said, you know, this, I guess this means that the DNA, my DNA hasn't totally ruled my life. I said, you bet. <laughs> But I, th I was so, it disconcerted me that this you know this woman had been attending Dharma talks for I don't know how many years, and it's still, still she came up with this fatalistic idea that you know there is no self, therefore there is no agent, and there's just our DNA working through us. Um, another misunderstanding that comes up is that clinging means to hold on to things, thinking that they're permanent. I mentioned this earlier. If you know that they're not permanent and that things will pass away, then it's okay. It doesn't count as clinging. We become kind of serial clingers. <laughs> Not only that, I mean, you look at things that we cling to. What are the two big things that human beings cling to in general? Food and sex, right? Now, we all know that none of these are things are, are permanent. Food is not permanent, sex is not permanent, and yet we cling really tightly, which means we don't think that, we don't cling just because we think something's permanent. We cling because we think we're going to get something out of it. That it will actually be worth it. That whatever effort goes into the clinging will be worth it. And finally, another misunderstanding is there's no such thing as long-term happiness. Happiness to be found only, as I said, through serial clinging. Embracing, letting go, embracing, letting go, but realizing with a kind of a bittersweet way where there really is no permanent happiness in life. Um, this is illustrated sometimes with the image of a person sitting on the shore watching the waves come in and learning how to accept the fact, okay, yes, the waves come and the waves go. You don't try to push away the bad waves. You don't try to you know, hold on to the good waves. You just accept the fact that everything comes in waves. Um, this is not the Buddha's image for the path and the practice. His image is that we're on a dangerous shore of a river, but there's safe shore on the other side, and we have to go across the river. And we, we can get to safety. In other words, there is such a thing as long-term happiness. In fact, that's the beginning of wisdom, is really realizing there is such a thing as long-term happiness. The question is, what do I do to get that long-term welfare and happiness? The wisdom being that, one, long-term is better than short-term, and two, it's going to depend on your actions. This comes back to that principle that everything in the Buddhist teachings has to be understood in the light of its teaching on karma. Another misunderstanding that comes from putting the th three characteristics first is that everything in the world changes. That includes even the Dharma has to change. As if the Dharma goes to different countries, it gets changed, it comes to the West, it's okay to change it too. Which makes us forget that there are people all throughout Asia, no matter what culture they've been in, there are some people who say, okay, let's make it more understandable in terms of our culture. And other people say, no, we have to change ourselves in order to fit in with the Dharma. 
and they try to go back and f try to find guys get as close as they can to what the original message was. That's what's kept Buddhism alive all these times. But what's happened now is that we have no standards for deciding what's right Dharma or wrong Dharma, and we say that um, if you hold on to the idea that there is such a thing as right and wrong, you're clinging to views, which is bad. Um, I've been trying to practice my French over the past couple of years, because I've been teaching in France. I teach in France, I teach in Brazil. In Brazil, all you have to say is, bon dia, and everybody loves you. In France, you say a whole paragraph and they sneer. <laughs> <laughs> So I've been watching this TV show. They actually have a, a show on national TV in France, 15 minutes a week devoted to Buddhism. It's part of this series they call the Paths of, Paths of Faith, where they have three different kinds of Christianity, and then they have Islam and Buddhism, 15 minutes each. And so for the, for, I've been watching the Buddhism program to work up on my French and, and my Buddhist French. And there was one show that particularly got to me. There was a, a Buddhist scholar who was talking about dependent core rising and inconstancy. And the woman who was interviewing him asked him, that this, all these concepts, dependent core rising and inconstancy, how do these actually apply in life? And he says, it means if people are in love, they have to accept the fact that today's love is going to be expressed differently from yesterday's love. And I kept thinking, boy, is that a French way of explaining it. <laughs> But he's also saying, hey, look, if I'm going to cheat on you, you have to accept that fact. That's what he's saying. Which is not what the, what the Buddha was teaching. I mean, the Buddha said there is right view and there's wrong view. There's right and wrong. And it's good to hold on to those things. It's not. It's like a John Cha's question. You're coming back from a market and you're holding a banana in your hand and someone asks you, why are you carrying the banana? You say, it's because I'm going to eat it. Are you going to eat the peel too? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? And he asks, how are you going to answer them? And his answer, his answer comes in two, two phases. The first phase is you answer out of desire. In other words, you have to want to come up with a good answer to have the discernment that provides a good answer. He's talking about the role that desire plays in the path. And then secondly, as you say, the answer is the time hasn't come yet to let go of the peel. If I let go of the peel now, the banana will turn into mush in my hands and I can't eat it. And it's the same way there are certain things you've got to hold on to sense of what's right and wrong in the path, your desire to, to complete the path. You hold on to those things until you've developed the path, then you can let it go. In other words, your m mind turns into mush. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.